Tonight, the desperate battle to contain California's historic fires is now a race against time. Crews working around the clock to get a handle on some of the largest fires in state history with a new looming threat in the forecast today. Fresh red flag warnings and another predicted bout of dry lightning storms. The same conditions were in place exactly one week ago. Thousands of lightning strikes and heavy winds spread flames across the state. They could cause havoc on this fire and fire throughout the region uh, 50 miles away. Today, another grim milestone. The fire is now totaling more than 1.1 million acres in size, a fire footprint visible from space. The president signing a disaster declaration, releasing federal aid to help exhausted crews on the ground. The National Guard and military arriving in California to relieve the strain on firefighters. In Northern California, where monster flames devoured homes, forced the evacuations of thousands and killed at least five people. Will Cook is resorting to filling buckets of creek water in an effort to douse small fires in his neighborhood. Driving around the neighborhood, checking properties and stuff, and looking for little spot fires that are flaring up. But for some, it's already too late. In shock, just total shock. Brian Brannigan returned to his home to find ruins. Beautiful home, four-car garage, everything gone. And this fire just came so quick. And nearby, a haunting site. Hundreds of ancient trees inside California's oldest state park decimated. A permanent scar serving as a painful reminder of the fire's terrifying power. Steve, it's so disturbing. How are the National Guard and the military supporting the firefighters now? Kate, the Guard is deploying about a dozen 20-person crews as well as specialized air tankers to fires spread across this state. The firefighters I spoke to said they're welcoming any help they can get, especially now. Now uh, it's San Francisco toward the coast. It looks okay in terms of what we're seeing, but there's so many other parts of the Bay Area just literally socked in. In the East Bay now, people who were shopping or doing business outside told us uh, they tried to make their trips as quick as possible. Local doctors say they've seen a big rise in patients complaining of just breathing and respiratory issues. The air quality now is bad, especially for people who have asthma, you know, allergies, you know, a lot of people who suffer with sinuses, you know, the smoke is not good, especially with myself. I know I have allergies. This is not just a nuisance. This is a health risk. And there are levels of air pollution that are now being documented as unhealthy for everyone. If you're having trouble, go see your doctor, or at least get a hold of your doctor. They also say if you have to go outside, just try to get one of those N95 masks because they're better at keeping out the smoke. That air quality, we'll talk about it a little right now. We've seen a lot of this, eerie yet beautiful, these filtered sunsets. This is the haze in San Jose, those bright red and orange clouds hanging over the South Bay. You've likely spent the day dodging the ash and smoke. In some cases, it's making our air nearly toxic. NBC Bay Area's Ian Cull explains what you can do, what we can all do to protect ourselves. Air quality officials say it's important to stay inside if you can because they expect this low level smoke to come back in overnight and stay until at least Friday, depending on the weather and fire activity. As night falls, you can see a new storm moving in, showering the Bay Area in ash and bringing even more smoke. According to Purple Air, we have the worst air quality on the planet today. The darker the spot, the worse it is in your city. You can see the ash kind of settling on tables and you know, who wants to eat that? 
Under the haze, some restaurants decided to close patio seating, like Forbes Mill Steakhouse in Los Gatos. Just the latest challenge they faced this year. Yeah, well, it's been brutal. You know, there's a lot of smoke out. It's it's terrible air quality. Um, we made a decision for our guests. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not safe to be out here as well as our employees. San Jose State also closed down for the day, along with most outdoor activities. Unfortunately, it may get worse overnight as the inversion layer sets in and kind of traps smoke near the ground, especially in areas like the Santa Clara Valley and Livermore Valley. The Bay Area Air Quality Management District says it's best to stay inside, close your windows, and turn your car and home AC to recirculate. And an important note on the mask you've become accustomed to. Bandanas and cloth masks and typical surgical masks that are used to prevent the spread of COVID-19, they do nothing to protect against wildfire smoke. The spare the air alert will last until Sunday as Bay Area residents and businesses try to push through. I'm thinking today's going to be a rough day. Heat, smoke, COVID, it's 2020. In San <laughs> Jose, Ian Cole, NBC, Bay Area News. We're trying something new today, we right? We want the, the wind to clear out the smoke, but then gems. it increases the flames for the fire lines. We just can't escape the smoke. Take a look here. This is drone video showing the thick haze in the South Bay within the last hour. This is in Las Gatas near the Highway 8517 interchange. A spare the air alert, a spare the air alert, which was supposed to expire today, is now extended through Sunday. So get ready for a long few days ahead of us. Let's bring in Janelle Wang, tracking the air quality, not just in the South Bay, but across the Bay Area, Janelle. Yeah, Roch, a little bit of good news. It has improved the air quality in some areas, but we still have unhealthy levels across the Bay Area. At the peak today, around uh, late morning, noon, we had some of the worst air quality in the world. Check out this website. It's called Purple Air. It's an air monitoring website. The dark red is the areas with the unhealthiest air. You can see that includes a bit of San Francisco, the South Bay, and the East Bay along the 880-680 corridor. The peninsula was actually in dark red, too, earlier today, but it's clearing up here. Now, all this because of all the wildfires burning in the Bay Area. There are fires in every Bay Area county except San Francisco County. You can see as we tour our HD sky cameras the extreme heat, is trapping thick smoke and haze on top of us like a blanket. The Bay Area Air Quality Management District says everyone should just stay indoors, especially children, the elderly, people with health and respiratory issues, and keep your windows and doors closed and try to put your air condition on recirculate if that is possible. Now, as I mentioned, the peninsula saw some of the worst air quality in the Bay Area today because of the wildfires burning in San Mateo County. Our Jackie Ward is live in Redwood City with more on how people are coping today. And Jackie, you and I have been on the peninsula all day this morning. I couldn't even see the sun. The air quality was at dangerous levels, but I see a little bit of blue sky now. What are you seeing on your end? It was really eerie earlier to start the day, that is for sure. But as the day progressed, yes, we have blue sky here for now. As night falls and the wind is expected to die down, the air quality is expected to go from bad to worse again. If you're between 101 and 280 uh, in that area, you're getting some impacts. Those impacts look like this. Thick smoke settling in pockets all across the Bay Area and especially Redwood City. Drinking a lot of water and trying to get as much uh, shit as possible. Just trying to stay cool. 
The poor air quality combined with the heat made for an extra tough day for Ramon Lopez, who has the grueling task of raising iron on recently paved roads. Just in general with these masks, yeah, the, the, the whole pandemic thing's been a little bit hard because the mask. Down the block, tech worker Neo Shu had an in-person meeting with his co-workers for the first time since March. I would say terrible because uh, we can see the ashes falling over the sky and uh, the, you can smell the smoke in the air. He says maybe face coverings and staying home aren't so bad after all. I would say best way to do it just to stay at home, don't go outside. And uh, after our short meeting, we'll just go back and stay in my room because uh, it's uh, like a double benefit. Stay away from the smoke, stay away from the COVID. Janelle, local air quality experts say that that spare, the air alert that's in effect now, is expected to stay in effect until Friday, maybe even the weekend. Yeah, we're hearing that too, Jackie, through Sunday now. Thanks so much. Now, if you do go outside, these cloth masks are not going to protect you from wood smoke. You're going to need an N95 mask or higher to protect you from wood smoke. Jessica? We mentioned Santa Clara County, one of the worst spots We're for air quality, extremely unhealthy, and you've probably seen the ash on your car and your outdoor furniture. NBC Bay Area Scott Budman joins us in the South Bay. Scott, where exactly are you and how bad is it? We are right next to the San Jose Arena, so downtown, and it is bad. There's no way to get around this, Raj, even with the mask on. This air is very unhealthy for us, and this all comes at a time when many people and businesses have recently moved outside. It's risky business at San Jose's La Villa Deli. It's absolutely terrible. People are worried about even stepping outside for lunch with ash on their cars and air that smells like you're walking inside a giant barbecue. Can't breathe. Why is that? It's thick with all that smoke. Feels like stuff has fallen in the air. I'm thinking today's going to be a rough day. Heat, smoke. COVID, it's 2020. Fires have spread smoke all over the Bay Area. San Jose State closed down for the day. Many outdoor activities were halted. The air quality here is, to put it mildly, dangerous. In retrospect, we will see increase in rates of heart attacks and strokes on days like today. This is a severe uh, health problem. Medical professionals say if at all possible, stay inside with your windows and doors closed. As much as people can avoid exposure to this smoke, uh, this is more than just a nuisance. This is a real health hazard. So I came by to get lunch and then I'm staying in until it gets better. That's a very good idea. By the way, Dr. Daly went on to say that the masks we've been wearing the last several months to protect each other from COVID are just not good enough for this air. He says if you can, try to get an N95 mask. They're not perfect, but they're a lot better. Live in San Jose, Scott Budman, NBC, Bay Area News. All right, Scott, thank you. Now Ideological extremism and people just being total fucking assholes. Oh, and right. Okay. <clears throat> There is no uh, no video to this because I can't imagine it's interesting uh, watching us listen to a book. I just uh, I can't imagine there's a lot of appeal for that. All right, so um yeah, Wine Cellar Book Club, it's finally fucking happening, and you can thank 
Queen Mala for that. All right, the queen has been yassed, and I'm finally doing Wine Cellar Book Club. Because I've never really been that interested. But, you know, um, the shit that I will do will be nonfiction. I, I hate fiction so fucking much. It's just boring as shit. Like, I don't want to see about... And her hazel eyes glistened in the sun. I don't give a fuck, you know? I hate fiction. I can't stand that shit. But uh, here we have uh, Thomas Frank's book. And uh, Thomas Frank is the one I first heard of with the book called Listen Liberal and was uh, interviewed by Nicole Sandler and made the rounds, gets interviewed by a lot of lefty podcasters. But I really like Nicole Sandler's interviewing. And this book that Thomas Frank has out recently is called The People Know a brief history of anti-populism which is why in the podcast title for this you're only going to see the words wine cellar book club thomas frank the people know part one because the rest of that title is relatively long so for whenever you see this podcast it's just gonna be the people know and what part we're on as far as the titles go and um for the live, we are live right now. We'll just jump straight into the audiobook, you know. And yeah, I got I'm I'm on I have an Audible account. I got the audiobook. But uh for the podcast, like the archive, I will have like some news that's relevant mixed in there. So like for this podcast, like if you're listening to the archive after it was live, you may have heard about California wildfires and other such things. All right? And um yeah, man, so back to Queen Mala is why this is happening. Like, when he nominated... Because I was like, Susan Rice is a good, boring one to pick. Like, Queen Mala has all that cop shit in the background. And it's like, they pick Queen Mala, the level of a middle finger that is to every the fuck body. And I was like, I'm not doing this shit. I'm not going to come on this program every single day and try to tell you how Kamala's a cop. No. And also, when I look at it, it's like, man, I'm going into my 40s. Do I want to be doing this horse race president shit and saying, hey, look at the shitty Democrat that's just as shitty as the Republican for age 41, right? That's going to be the next one. 2024, I'm going to be fucking 41, right, for the, the 2028 I mean, granted, however long climate change keeps let us letting us have these little election parties, do that, like, dance that up. I'm going to be fucking uh, 45 and then 49. Fuck no, I'm not going to dwell on that shit the whole time. We're going to check out some books. We're going to fuck around. We're going to cover more white-on-white white crime, more cis-identity extremists. And again, Wine Cellar Book Club is going to be gosh darn happening. And we're starting this one raw, straight from the beginning. You're going to get the full opener, even the part where they say, this is audible. You're going to get all of that shit. And roughly every 10 minutes or where I think somewhere in like a 10 to 15 minute area, I will stop. And if there are callers on the line, we can talk in about what we just heard, you know, riff about it for about, you know, 10 to 15 minutes again, and then play more. Until we get into our typical wine cellar hour. And then we'll come back and get with you next time. 
So it's a dope book. It's Wine Cellar Book Club. The shit's over eight hours, so it's going to take a few episodes to get through it. Like, we'll actually be in Michigan before we're done doing this book club. I think. All right. So uh, let's rock out. I'm going to let this shit play. Uh, The call-in number is 347-857-3937. I may actually just uh, start making that part of the episode title or, like, putting it in in the description as, like, the first characters you see before you read anything so that folks can definitely call in. And maybe we might add Facebook Live to this. I think... My best idea that I have so far for adding a Facebook Live to the book club is I can do a screen share and just put on one of those compilations of cats being silly on YouTube. You know, they have like those hour or something compilations and it'll just be cats moving around so that if you do like Facebook Live, the audio is better on Facebook Live anyway. But if you do like that, then I can incorporate that and then we can just like show you cats or something, you know, or like. I don't know, people falling off skateboards or some shit. I don't fucking know. Nah, that's kind of gruesome, the skateboard shit. I actually tried to watch those in my early 20s. They're fucking grisly. But then you find those Mike Vallely fight videos, and those are fun. All right, um, I am going to start it. That's it. It's about to happen. Wine Cellar Book Club started the podcast in 2012. And if you would have asked me then, I'd have been like... Fuck no, I ain't doing no damn book club. Nigga, there's real shit cracking. <laughs> but you know what? There's real shit cracking that Thomas Frank talks about in this book. So let's get to it. This is Audible. Macmillan Audio presents The People Know A Brief History of Antipopulism Written and read by Thomas Frank Who shall speak for the people? Who knows the works from A to Z so he can say, I know what the people want. Who is this phenom? Where did he come from? When have the people been half as rotten as what the panderers to the people dangle before crowds? From The People Yes by Carl Sandburg. I am the hip-hop socialist. Introduction. The Cure for the Common Man. Just a few short years ago, we Americans knew what we were doing in the world. We were going to make the planet into one big likeness of ourselves. We had the experts. We knew how it was done. Our policy operatives would de-radicalize here and regime change there. Our economists would float billions to the good guys and slap sanctions on the bad. And pretty soon, the whole world was going to be stately and neat a place that was safe for debt instruments and empowerment seminars, for hors d'oeuvres in the embassy garden and taxis we hailed with our smartphone. Democracy, of thee we sang. Now we stand chastened, humiliated, bewildered. Democracy? We tremble to think of what it might do next. Government of the people? When we open the door to ordinary people, when we let them actually influence what goes on, they will insist we make bigotry and persecution into our great national causes. Government by the people? When we let the people have their say, unmanaged, uncurated, 
some large part of them will choose the biggest blowhard on TV to be our leader. And then they'll cheer for him as he destroys the environment and cracks down on migrant families. Heed the voice of the plain people and all the levies of taste and learning will immediately be swamped. Half of them will demand that minorities be consigned to the back of the bus. The other half will try to confiscate the hard-won wealth of society's greatest innovators. So goes the wail of the American leadership class as they endure another year of panic over where our system is dragging them. They know on some level that what has happened in Washington isn't due to majority rule at all, but to money and gerrymandering and the Electoral College and decades of TV programming decisions. But the anxiety cannot be dislodged. It is beyond the reach of reason. The people are out of control. Populism is the word that comes to the lips of the respectable and the highly educated when they perceive the global system going haywire like this. Populism is the name they give to the avalanche crashing over the alpine wonderland of Davos. Populism is what they call the mutiny that may well turn the supercarrier America into a foundering wreck. Populism, for them, is a one-word evocation of the logic of the mob. It is the people as a great rampaging beast. What has happened, the thinkers of the Beltway and the C-Suite tell us, is that the common folk have declared independence from experts and along the way from reality itself. And so they have come together to rescue civilization, political scientists, policy advisors, economists, technologists, CEOs, joining as one to save our social order, to save it from populism. This imagined struggle of expert versus populist has a fundamental, almost biblical flavor to it. It is a battle of order against chaos, education against ignorance, mind against appetite, enlightenment against bigotry, culture against barbarism. From TED Talk and red carpet, the call rings forth. Democracy must be controlled before it ruins our democratic way of life. In attacking populism, the object is not merely to resist President Donald Trump, the nation's thinkers say, nor is the conflict of our time some grand showdown of left and right. Questions like that, they tell us, were settled long ago when the Soviet Union collapsed. No, the political face-off of today is something different. It pits the center against the periphery, the competent insider against the disgruntled sorehead. In this conflict, the side of right is supposed to be obvious. Ordinary people are agitated. Everyone knows this. But the ones whose well-being must concern us most are the elites whom the people threaten to topple. This is the core assumption of what I call the democracy scare. If the people have lost faith in the ones in charge, it can only be because something has gone wrong with the people themselves. As Jonathan Rausch, a senior fellow at Brookings and a contributing editor to The Atlantic, put it in the summer of 2016, our most pressing political problem today is that the country abandoned the establishment, not the other way around.
Denunciations of populism have been commonplace for years. They only flowered into a full-blown panic in 2016 when commentators identified populism as the secret weapon behind the unlikely presidential bid of the TV billionaire Donald Trump. Populism was also said to be the mysterious force that had permitted the self-identified outsider Bernie Sanders to do so well in Democratic primaries. Populism was also the name of the mass delusion that had foisted Brexit on the United Kingdom. Indeed, once you started looking, unauthorized troublemakers could be seen trouncing ruling classes in countries all around the world. Populists were misleading people about globalization. Populists were saying mean things about elites. Populists were subverting traditional institutions of government. And populists were winning. In basing our civilization on the consent of the plain people, it suddenly seemed that our ancestors had built on a foundation of sand. Democracies end when they are too democratic, blared the title of a much-discussed 2016 essay by Andrew Sullivan. An article in Foreign Policy magazine expressed it more archly. It's time for the elites to rise up against the ignorant masses. Then came the unthinkable. The ignorant demagogue Trump was elected to the most powerful office in the world. Trump's victory that November only happened thanks to the Electoral College, an anti-populist instrument from long ago, but that irony quickly receded into the background. Instead, the democracy scare developed into a kind of hysteria. Across the world, there were panels and convenings and academic projects dedicated to analyzing and theorizing and worrying about this thing called populism. The 2017 Global Report for Human Rights Watch was titled simply, The Dangerous Rise of Populism. In March of that year, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair rang the alarm with the New York Times essay titled, How to Stop Populism's Carnage. At about the same time, he founded the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, an organization whose website announces that populists, quote, can pose a real threat to democracy itself. Sober citizens were worrying about populism at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Scholarly types were moaning about it at the annual Prague Populism Conference. High net worth individuals reviled it at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. The cool kids deplored it on the plains of Texas at South by Southwest, a festival that originated as a punk rock gathering. In the Netherlands, the Friedrich Naumann Foundation sponsored another convening on the subject. The proceedings were described like this. Populism has become a widespread phenomenon throughout the world. The danger of their backward-looking nostalgia for an idealized past, half-truths, and fake news stories pose a threat for free and open societies. At Brigham Young University, a squad of experts on this dangerous phenomenon were ready to go even before 2016. Team Populism, as it called itself, swung into action with a flurry of policy memos and innovative statistical techniques. At Stanford, the Global Populisms Project, which is co-chaired by a prominent former member of the Obama administration, declared as follows on its website, quote, 
populist parties are a threat to liberal democracy. The democracy scare was impressively pan-partisan. The Liberal Center for American Progress came together in 2018 with its Beltway nemesis, the conservative American Enterprise Institute, to issue a report on, quote, the threat of authoritarian populism, unquote, and to outline the task facing America's political elites as they went about beating it down. The National Endowment for Democracy, supposedly a nonpartisan foundation, hosted a launch party for two books dedicated to pumping up the fear. Anti-Pluralism, the Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy, was the title of one of them. In it, political scientist William Galston announced that populists damage democracy as such. The People versus Democracy was the title of the other. In it, political scientist Yasha Monk wrote that populism is a disease. And the disease was spreading. It was, in fact, an epidemic. There can no longer be any doubt that we are going through a populist moment, Monk continued. The question now is whether this populist moment will turn into a populist age and cast the very survival of liberal democracy in doubt. Deploring populism might seem like a peculiar thing to do in a land whose most treasured historical utterance concerns a government that is of the people, by the people, for the people. In a tradition where visiting the Iowa State Fair is a religious pilgrimage for politicians of every sort, in a culture that regards anyone who is less than enthusiastic about Burger King or the Batman franchise as some kind of sickening snob, the anti-populist war effort ignores facile contradictions such as these, however. Populism works, we are told, by summoning up the worst features of democracy. It puts the common man on a pedestal. It promises him the strong leaders he craves, and it assaults the multiculturalism he hates. When populism gets in power, it ignores norms and attacks institutions that protect basic rights like free speech and innocence till proven guilty. Populism is simply another word for mob rule, a headlong collapse into the tyranny of the majority that our founding fathers so dreaded. Pop. Ooh. I will pause it right there, Miss Ma'am. That is uh, 12 minutes and 53 seconds in. Yes. Phoenix Leader thinks this book is whack as fuck. What? I do? Not feeling it. You, oh. you prefer that the elites make these calls. Yeah. I mean, you say you don't trust Joe Biden to know what's best for black communities? <laughs> yeah, this is, um, and I guess he, he's kind of setting it up, right? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not a book reader, folks. I'm a news reader. Yes. I read articles. So, like, yeah, like, you're an actual book reader. Yes. Where are you? Like, is, is he setting this up well? I think, I think he's so. slacking. Oh, why do you think he's slacking? I don't actually know. Oh, I think <laughs> he's doing an okay job um, of setting it up. I do think that it'll be interesting to see. Um, yeah, it's so much harder to listen to a book than to read a book. Um, <laughs> what? <it'll> be, <laughs> you heard me. It's the exact same words, Chief. In a different context. No, they're in a different context. Yes. You mean a different delivery system? A different medium. <laughs> you think it said a different, a different context? Um, 
Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's fucking weird to listen to a book. <laughs> uh, this is why I don't listen to podcasts. Anyways, um, no, I think he's setting it up. I also think it's interesting how he's, um, you know, I think he's going to start talking about fascism relatively soon, but it's also interesting how he's approaching this from critiquing Democrats from the left. I like that. I'm a fan. Yeah, again, this this is the cat that has the book out there, Listen Liberal. Yeah. And I mean, and fuck, we can do that one. We can do whatever the fuck. Remember, it's our program. It's your program. You know, the people mm-hmm. fund this fucking program. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like I'll, I'll do Naomi Klein shit. Bring in more books. Who else should we fuck with? Um, I don't know. I would like to see one where we cover uh, the Combahee uh, River Collective, but that's like black feminist work. The what's it called? The river. You've never heard of the River Collective? Oh, let me find it for you. No, I'm ignorant, Chief. <sighs> the Combat River Collective. Not Combat. Oh, what's it called? Combahee. That's the name of the river. Combahee. I'm just. I'm trying to get your decibels up because you oh. are not talking to your microphone. I am talking. It's right in front of my face. What are you talking about? No, it's not. It is. <laughs> um. Yeah. Com- I'm assuming that's how you say it. I don't know. Oh, but, it's yeah. like a different kind of word. Oh, it looks like an uh, an indigenous word. Oh, kumbahi. Com- okay. Yeah, let's that, go with that. That says kumbahi. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I like how you say it with authority. Fuck, I'm a cis hetero male. That's uh, specialized in this. Anyways, <laughs> uh, yeah, I would like to uh, read some works from some of them. Okay. Actually. Yeah, like, um, again, like how you said, how just say that, like, I really would do that shit. Like, at the old job, like, with new employees, I would just point at stuff and just call it something. And just, to, just to see if they'd be like, man, that's not a fucking word. But I just, I just try you it just out. just say it and see what happens. Yeah. Didn't you, there was one that you said you kept saying wrong forever. And I was like, that's not how you say that. And you were like, oh, nobody ever says anything when I say it. And I was like, oh. Oh, that's a gang of shit. I forgot what it was. But, um, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, I know that's the, it was like a black, um, leftist, like feminist group. And they actually invented the term identity politics. Huh. Yeah. They coined it. That was they, the they, first time it was ever written in, like, a statement was they, from them. They're old school. They're from, like, the 70s or maybe the, like, late 60s. Hmm. Yeah. And they were, like, in favor of identity politics. Yes. Well, yeah, because they were critiquing other leftist movements for not addressing needs of black women. Hmm. So. Um, anyways, Thomas Frank. Is it, I'm just looking up his little, uh. Blurb. Yeah. Uh, American political analyst, historian, and journalist, uh, co-founded the Baffler magazine, has written several books, most notably What's the Matter with Kansas and Listen Liberal. Okay. Right. See, so you can see how he does it have a year on What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, 2004. 2000, so 2004, Thomas Frank does What's the Matter with Kansas. And just going by the title... He's just saying a name, and it sounds like a generic name, right? Like, Kansas is probably some sort of catch-all. I'm guessing, right? I, I, don't, I don't read books, folks. I read articles. Um, I have not read it, but just off the top of my head, I would assume there's, like, a, um... Actually, you know what? Before I say it, let me just fucking click the hyperlink and see. She's clicking the hyperlink <laughs> and seeing. Uh, how conservatives won the heart of America. Yes. Um, So Kansas was known as a hotbed of left-wing populist movements, but in recent decades has become increasingly conservative. How did this happen? Okay. 
Because I'm looking at that title, What's the Matter with Kansas? 2004, mm-hmm. MSNBC. Uh, man, I keep forgetting your homegirl's name. Uh, not Joanne Reed. She's the white one. She used to be the one that ran Salon.com. I don't know. This is the best way for me to remember her name. Uh, I think he was a governor. He was the one that was union busting. And he was actually caught on video with a billionaire who was telling him to use a divide and conquer strategy in his campaign. Oh, I don't know. Who I that remember <laughs> we've covered a lot of things on this we program. Have. Yeah, but her name is similar to his. If we if, if that helps uh, a little memorize and jogifying. But the name. Oh, you can look up the name of her book it was called What's the Matter with White People? Oh, right. And like, look, I remember when it came out, like I was still in my 20s and I was like, that's an interesting book title. And yeah, there is some stuff going on with the white folks out there. But now I'm a little older. I've watched these Democrats a little closer over the years. And I'm like, oh, you were just doing some tacky ass identity politics. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. So that's, uh, he wrote that. Um, let me see. His politics. Uh, Frank was a college Republican, but eventually became highly critical of conservatism, especially the presidency of George W. Bush. Frank summarized the thesis of his book, The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule, as bad government is the natural product of rule by those who believe government is bad. Oh, all right. Huh. All right. Oh, and she, she is Joanne Walsh. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know the name now. Joanne Walsh. Right, okay. yeah, because who, yeah, there's, there's some, um politician out there that has a similar name oh okay yeah all right uh so yeah any more information there uh let's see frank has discussed his research into populism that has been published in what we're reading right now the people know a brief history of anti-populism he discussed the origin of the term the united states examples of populisms and reactions against it from that time to present so all right that's what we're doing now neato neato all right, so indeed, folks, this is uh, WineCellarMedia.com 2020. It has brought you all sorts of things. A murder hornet stung me in my ass, and I started a book club. What? That sound legit? You did not get stung by a murder hornet. Yes, I. Yes, that did happen. And then the other murder hornet saw that he did a sufficient job and said, that's what they said. Really? And then the other murder hornet was like, I am the hip hop socialist. Really? I'm going to take the soundboard away from you. And then the queen hornet was like, I am hurt though, Bernie, that you've been distancing yourself a little from me. I mean, that's just not something that you do to your comrade. <laughs> I fucking hate that, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, back to uh, Thomas Frank, I'm going to dance it back 30 seconds. Give it a running start to where we paused it. All right. And this is The People Know a Brief History of Anti-Populism, 12 minutes and 23 seconds into the audiobook. I also feel like we should just clarify when you say the people know. It's not the people know as in the people are aware. It's the people, comma, N-O. Yeah. As in the people, fuck no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For the audio, Yes. And also, if anyone does see the um, podcast in the, uh, like, social media feeds, I made the book title the, you know, the art. Well, not art, but you know what I'm talking about. The fucking image. A pedestal. It promises him the strong leaders he craves, and it assaults the multiculturalism he hates. 
When populism gets in power, it ignores norms and attacks institutions that protect basic rights like free speech and innocence till proven guilty. Populism is simply another word for mob rule, a headlong collapse into the tyranny of the majority that our founding fathers so dreaded. Populism arrays the people against the intelligentsia, natives against foreigners, and dominant ethnic, religious, and racial groups against minorities, charges the Berkeley economist Barry Eichengreen. It is divisive by nature. It can be dangerously conducive to bellicose nationalism. Populist parties are particularly prone to internal authoritarianism, says yet another political scientist since those parties believe there can only be one way of representing the people. For the same reason, populists are said to be suspicious of the media. They are would-be tyrants and dictators claiming that no action of a populist government can be questioned because, of course, it's really an action of the people. And populists are always hinting at a, quote, massive disenfranchisement of those parts of the population of which they don't approve. Prizing the will of the people as it does, populism is also said to be unavoidably hostile to intellectuals. Indeed, as we shall see, this is often said to be its most critical failing. The Voice of Ordinary Citizens, one 2019 book about populism tells us, is regarded as the only genuine form of democratic governance, even when at odds with expert judgments, including those of elected representatives and judges, scientists and scholars, journalists and commentators. Thus the tragic flaw in the populist approach. Its ideal of government of, by, and for the people doesn't take into account the ignorance of the actual existing people. The people can't find Syria on a map. They think God created humans one day in their existing form. And if you give them half a chance, they'll go out and vote for a charlatan like Donald Trump. This is what made the election of 2016 a veritable dance of the dunces, according to Georgetown political philosopher Jason Brennan's book, against democracy, an accounting of the ignorance of the average American that even includes suggestions for how an enlightened modern government might, in effect, disenfranchise the stupid and thus deal with the problem of democratic error. This is the diagnosis. The patient's condition is said to be critical. But before we succumb to the hysteria of the democracy scare, Allow me to point out some curious aspects of this controversy. The backlash against populism typically comes down to us from the citadels of higher learning, from think tanks, university presses, and academic conferences. But it is not a disinterested literature of social science. Although they don't like to acknowledge it, the anti-populists are combatants in this war, defending themselves against a perceived assault on their own authority, which is to say that anti-populism is an adversary proceeding. Our thought leaders relate to populism not so much as scholars, but as a privileged class putting down a challenge to itself. 
Another peculiarity. The English language has a great many solid choices when someone wishes to describe mob psychology or racial intolerance. Demagogue is an obvious one, but there are others. Nationalist, nativist, racist, or fascist, to name a few. They're serviceable words, all of them. In the feverish climate of the democracy scare, however, none of those will work. Populist is the word we are instructed to use. Populists are the ones we must suppress. Let's find out why. For all the trouble and confusion surrounding populism, the word's origins are unusually clear. We know where this word comes from. We know why it was invented, and we know the time and place that it was born. As it happens, the birthplace is a locale familiar to me, the countryside between Kansas City and Topeka. Drive the highway between those two cities today and you will pass through a landscape of peaceful rolling hills and occasional violent tornado damage. In the fertile valley of the Kansas River, the farms are raising corn and soybeans. Through the fields run the tracks of the old Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. It was somewhere in this bucolic setting that the controversial word populist was invented. There are no historical markers to indicate exactly where the blessed event took place, but nevertheless it happened in this stretch of blank green countryside on a train traveling from KC to Topeka one day in May 1891. Could they have peeked into the future? That group of Topeka-bound passengers would have been astonished by the international reach and malign interpretations of their deed. That they were inventing a noun signifying mob-minded hater of all things decent would have come as a complete surprise to them. By coining the word populist, they intended to christen a movement that was brave and noble and fair, that would stand up to the narrow-minded and the intolerant. Oh, they meant to cause a certain amount of trouble, all right. In so naming themselves, the original populists were consecrating a brand new third-party movement that aimed to break the grip of conventional politicians and conventional ideas. The organization's formal name was the People's Party. It was mainly composed of angry farmers, insurgent agrarians who, in an enormous electoral surprise, had upended the political system in Kansas some six months previously. The farmers' revolt against the existing two-party system had quickly spread to other states, and in the month when our story begins, a delegation of Kansans attended a convention in Cincinnati, Ohio, and launched their People's Party at the national level. By the time those reformers boarded the train home to Topeka, their movement looked to have a promising future. They had a platform, a cause, millions of potential constituents, and the ringing Jeffersonian slogan, equal rights to all, special privileges to none. One thing the insurgent movement did not have, however, was a catchy word to describe its adherents. And so, on that fateful train ride, and in conversation with a local Democrat who knew some Latin, this bunch of Kansans came up with one populist, derived from populus, meaning people. 
the word's debut in print followed immediately. The American Nonconformist and Kansas Industrial Liberator, a radical newspaper out of Winfield, Kansas, used the new word as part of its excited coverage of the Cincinnati proceedings. The date was May 28, 1891. There must be some short and easy way of designating a member of the third party. To say he is a member of the People's Party would take too much time. Henceforth, a follower and affiliator of the People's Party is a populist, for a new party needs and deserves a new term. A new party needs a new term, and how that term caught on. For the two brothers who ran the American nonconformist, populist was a term without any ambiguity. It referred to economic radicals like them. Populists were those who supported a specific list of reforms designed to take power away from the plutocrats while advancing what the brothers called the rights and needs, the interests and welfare of the people. Blam. The rights, needs, interest, and welfare of the people. And shortly before I hit that pause point at 21 minutes and 46 seconds, Phoenix Kalita looked at the screen and was like, nigga, what? What happened? <laughs> oh, no, just, um, I'm, I'm glad he's going through, like, the historical um, aspect of this. I think that's, like, super interesting um, because I see the point he's making about populism as being for the people, but it's um, constantly uh, used to, you know, as he said, um, talk about mob rule, and, like, that's why we have Trump, and it really just means fascism, and it's like, no, it actually just means people want living wages, which is, like, ultra fascinating to me just in this political um, period, because people will say, like, populism is fascism, and that's why they voted for Trump, but then there's all these puff pieces they write about economically anxious voters as well, and it's like, pick a fucking struggle. Like, are they just economically anxious or are they like straight up fucking Nazis? <laughs> like, <laughs> which is just interesting to me, which just tells me that like corporate owned media knows exactly what's going on. People want a better standard of living, um, you know, and yeah, it's just uh, very interesting that he's going through like the historical context of like, no, this is actually what it means. Right. And their attitude, I'm guessing is just, hey, bootstrap harder, fucking loser. Look at me, I did it. Right? Like those house flippers that say, Oh, well, you know, we just had to use $250,000 and we went ahead and renovated this house. That's all it costs. Right. Like they have the that's all it costs attitude. I don't even know if they have that, honestly. I think that they um, really just, um, like, they know how hard it is, but they want to keep it that way because they want to be gatekeepers. Because, like, they don't want, like, people to bootstrap and be as successful as them. Mm. Like, there's there's already enough seats at the table. We don't want more. We already have diversity. Of thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, there's one person that thinks Kamala's the right choice, and there's one that thinks Amy Klobuchar's the right choice. They have different thoughts. And both of those thoughts are Blue Lives Matter? No. Really? One is Staplers Matter. <laughs> and the other... Oh, no. One is, st- one is Blue Lives Matter. The other one is All Lives Matter. Eh, yes. Jesus Christ. But, uh, but really, though, folks, blue lives actually don't matter. All right? Next time someone says, I'm not racist, I don't care if someone's 
uh, black, white, brown, blue, purple, say possum, say, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Fuck blue lives. Blue lives don't matter. Okay, that's your damn right, fetus. I think my new thing is uh, when somebody says blue lives matter, I'm just going to start responding by saying all lives matter, actually. Yeah. Why you want to just focus on that one? Right. Let's focus on... All lives matter. Yep. See, and that see, Phoenix, and I have different thoughts. I say blue lives don't matter. Phoenix says all lives matter. (laughs) We have diversity of thought. Yeah, see, but I disagree because if blue lives don't matter then all lives don't actually matter because we are excluding blue lives. And you know what? If uh, if there are some adult blue lives in the area that we move in and they have offspring that are pre-teens or early teens, our, our, our child in this household can't play with them. You can't play with blue lives. Mm-mm. And no. I don't want that blue life on my porch. I don't mm-hmm. want that blue life in my driveway. I mean, you just can't trust them, really. No. They're fucking criminals. They've always got guns, right? They're yeah. always drinking on their job and falling yeah. asleep in the car. Beating their wives. Blue lives are actually quite disgusting. It's really ill how everything we're saying is true. <laughs> Uh-oh, so, so I guess we just paused the book to do wine cellar shit. <laughs> and- <laughs> we're very tangenty. But yeah, um, no, I think that like he actually is laying down a really solid foundation to explain the historical... Um, aspect of populism and how it's been sort of hijacked by liberals who are like, no, we know what's better for you. And there's a level of overstating the obvious for newcomers. Yeah. Like, if you can't tell that populism comes from populists with your own ass brain, then this book is for you. You thought I was going to dish you, wasn't it? No, it means this book is for you. (laughs) I think a lot of people probably don't know that, though, because they've never sat down and thought about it. Huh. You know, yeah, but and and also I'm a, I'm a word nerd. My biological mother was an English major. So like, yeah, when I hear pop like as soon as I heard the word populist, I was like, yeah, whatever that is, I'm probably that. <laughs> oh, well, in my head, I was like, oh, it sounds like popular. So that's probably a good thing if it's popular. Yeah, matter of fact, <laughs> like if you can find my old MP3s on SoundCloud, they're listed under progressive rap. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. And I uploaded a bunch of them shits in the early 2000s because I just I was looking at all the categories you could go under and I saw progressive and I was like, yeah, I'm probably that, <laughs> you know, like sometimes the words are just easy, even though I'm just kind of leaning on colloquialism and my own myopic view of this shit. You know what I'm saying? I think you do. I'm going to do the same thing where I do a little 30-second dance back. Remember, folks, I hope this does catch on and people do call in and we have a good time. I am sharing this to the Social Dissonance group and to the Social Dissonance page and the uh, Wine Cellar uh, podcast group page. I do intend to gun it in at 4 p.m. For the future right now, like once we're in Michigan and September 14th, I start working. I'm probably going to end up on second shift. Which means there ain't going to be no damn 4 p.m. program. It's going to be a, a different time of day. Yeah. Or maybe even late at night, you know, like whatever cracks, you know. But uh, for now, like until we actually uh, leave and go to Michigan and then I get set up in the new factory, I'll be shooting for 4 p.m. on the regular and hopping into this book and maybe doing a wee bitty boo, a news and comment. Yeah, right. Right. Oh, uh, fucking. What so- time is second shift there? Old man Jackson doesn't know yet. Oh, okay. That's right. All right. Doesn't even that gum know. 
<laughs> Though I know I'll probably dislike it because it's like when I was in the customer service industry, uh, it was like I was on that. They don't call it second shift. They just call it closing where you just come in in the afternoon and you know you're going to be here well into the night. Yeah. And I don't like that shit. I don't like coming home late at night. I don't like being out late at night. I don't like being awake late at night. That's not how things go. Sun's up, I'm up. Sun's down, I'm down. That's how it's supposed to go. All right. Dance in the back 30 seconds. Give it a running start to where we paused it. In the same issue of the paper that premiered the word, the nonconformist spelled out the grievances of the People's Party. Was a term without any ambiguity. It referred to economic radicals like them. Populists were those who supported a specific list of reforms designed to take power away from the plutocrats while advancing what the brothers called the rights and needs, the interests and welfare of the people. In the same issue of the paper that premiered the word, the nonconformist spelled out the grievances of the People's Party. It protested poverty, unbearable debt, monopoly, and corruption, and it looked forward to the day when these were ended by the political actions <laughs> of the people themselves. The industrial forces have made a stand, the paper declared of the events in Cincinnati. The demands of the toilers for right and justice were crystallized into a strong new party. In fact, the populist revolt against the two major parties would turn out to be even more momentous than that grandiose passage implied. Populism was one of the first of the great political efforts to tame the capitalist system. Up until then, mainstream politicians in America had by and large taken the virtues of that system for granted. Society's winners won, those politicians believed, because they were better people because they had prevailed in a rational and supremely fair contest called free enterprise. The populists were the people who blasted those smug assumptions to pieces, forcing the country to acknowledge that ordinary Americans who were just as worthy as bankers or railroad barons were being ruined by an economic system that in fact answered to no moral laws. Not everybody thought populism was such a wonderful invention, however. Kansas Republicans, whose complacent rule over the state had been interrupted by the... All right, we're going to do a little dance back. Phoenix Kalita said, run that shit back. I'm clicking the 30-second back button. Will that be sufficient? Uh, maybe one minute, because, I, yeah, I feel like I've missed something. Like, uh -oh. I didn't... I, I wasn't hearing it fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> was I rapping too fast, or were you listening too slow? I mean... Let's see. Looks like, okay, I hit the 30 second twice. Once more for good. Poverty, unbearable debt, monopoly, and corruption. And it looked forward to the day when these were ended by the political actions of the people themselves. The industrial forces have made a stand, the paper declared of the events in Cincinnati. The demands of the toilers for right and justice were crystallized into a strong new party. In fact, the populist revolt against the two major parties would turn out to be even more momentous than that grandiose passage implied. Populism was one of the first of the great political efforts to tame the capitalist system. 
Up until then, mainstream politicians in America had by and large taken the virtues of that system for granted. Society's winners won, those politicians believed, because they were better people, because they had prevailed in a rational and supremely fair contest called free enterprise. The populists were the people who blasted those smug assumptions to pieces, forcing the country to acknowledge that ordinary Americans who were just as worthy as bankers or railroad barons were being ruined by an economic system that in fact answered to no moral laws. Not everybody thought populism was such a wonderful invention, however. Kansas Republicans, whose complacent rule over the state had been interrupted by the People's Party, insisted that a better term for their foes was calamityites, because they complained all the time. The Kansas City Star, an influential regional paper, surveyed the Cincinnati convention where the third party was born and sneered that it bore a much closer semblance to a mob than to a deliberative assembly. What's more, the Star's editorialist continued, the conference from beginning to end was distinguished for its intolerance and extreme bigotry, words that the paper used to describe the way a heavy-handed leadership faction steered the proceedings according to its own preferences. The judgment of the Topeka Capitol, the leading voice of Republican rectitude in Kansas, was even harsher than that. The paper's lively page one news story on the gathering of reformers in Cincinnati was headed as follows. Third party, Cincinnati rapidly filling up with the disgruntled ravelings of the old parties. Kansans to the fore, in large numbers and making themselves ridiculously conspicuous by their gab. Hayseed in their hair, Kansas alliancers proclaim their politics by the uncouthness of their personal attire. This is how the establishment welcomed the populist revolt into the world. And this is pretty much how the establishment thinks about populism still. From the very beginning, then, populism had two meanings. There was populism as its proponents understood it, meaning a movement in which ordinary citizens demanded democratic economic reforms. And there was populism as its enemies characterized it a dangerous movement of groundless resentment in which demagogues led the disreputable. The specific reforms for which the People's Party stood are largely forgotten today, but the insults and accusations with which populism was received in 1891 are alive and well. You can read them in best-selling books, watch them flashed on the PowerPoint at prestigious foundation conferences, hear the words of the Kansas City Star and the Topeka Capitol mouthed by people who have never heard of Topeka, Kansas. Populist movements, they will tell you, are mob actions. Reformers are bigots. Their leaders are blatherskites. Their followers are mentally ill or ignorant or uncouth at the very least. They are cranks. They are troublemakers. They are deplorables. And yes, they still have hayseed in their hair. Do the origins of words matter? Does it make any difference who invented the word populist and what they meant by it? After all, the meaning of words evolves all the time. 
Mutability is part of the nature of language. Merely figuring out the intentions of the people who coined a given word doesn't tell us a whole lot. In this case, I think it does matter. For one thing, populist is not a word that fell conveniently from the sky, empty of signification and ready for pundits to use however they want. It was consciously invented to denote a particular group with a particular purpose. And though the People's Party is no more, the political philosophy that the populists embodied did not die. The idea of working people coming together against economic privilege lives on. You might say it constitutes one of the main streams of our democratic tradition. The populist impulse has in fact been a presence in American life since the country's beginning. Populism triumphed in the 1930s and the 1940s when the people overwhelmingly endorsed a regulatory welfare state. Populist uprisings occur all the time in American life, always with the same enemies, monopolies, banks, and corruption, and always with the same salt-of-the-earth heroes. When we use the word to describe demagogues and would-be dictators, we are inverting that historic meaning. Populism was profoundly, achingly democratic. The Kansans who invented the term were referring to something that by the standards of the time was anti-demagogic, that was pro-enlightenment and pro-equality. In its heyday, and alone among American political parties of the time, populism stood strong for human rights. Populism had prominent women leaders. Populists despised tyrants and imperialism. Populism defied the poisonous idea of Southern white solidarity. In these days of feverish anti-populism, my mind often goes back to a 1900 speech by one of the very last populists in Congress, a Nebraska lawyer named William Neville. His subject was America's then new policy of imperial rule over the Philippines and the populist spelled out his party's opposition. But first, he deplored Southern Democrats for trying to, quote, exclude the black man from the right of suffrage. And he denounced Republicans for, quote, shooting salvation and submission into the brown man because he wants to be free. And then Neville said this, Nations should have the same right among nations that men have among men. The right to life Liberty and the pursuit of happiness is as dear to the black and brown man as to the white, as precious to the poor as to the rich, as just to the ignorant as to the educated, as sacred to the weak as to the strong, and as applicable to nations as to individuals, and the nation which subverts such right by force is no better governed than the man who takes the law into his own hands." some dead ass air for me to edit the fuck out <laughs> fantastic i remember to turn that phantom button on so yeah it did end at 30 minutes and one second 
just for that pause. That's where we're stopping now. We hit our hour for the evening. Um, we'll be back four in the fuck damn p.m. And uh, this is my last week in this particular facility factory. And then I will be out for a fortnight moving. And well, I'll be out. We will be moving. Not I will be moving. Uh, we will be fucking moving. And then most likely the podcast like schedule is going to go way who knows where the fuck. Right. Right. Because I have been shit, man. I've been on morning shifts. Like, since before I started the program. I've been on morning shift since 2009. It's 2020. That's a while. That's a while. Yeah, that's a complete fucking lifestyle change. Yeah. I might get a little disgruntled and be like, I don't need to put me on first shift. (laughs) This is fucking goof troops. But they didn't have any positions open for first shift when I uh, went for the transfer. Really, and we went to two factories. Uh, There were a couple more options, but... Time was limited when we went to go visit Michigan. And, uh, yeah, both of them only had second and third shift open. So no first shift for me. Looks like I'm going to be one of those people that, I don't know, like gets up later. Yeah. Like 8 a.m. or something. Sure. Yeah, probably get up like 8 a.m., 9 a.m. I'm going to have to be one of those folks now because I'm not going to be on my regular schedule. All right. So dig it. I hope this thing catches on and more people call in. You know, I'll keep sharing it to the uh, pages, Facebooks, Twitter, let folks know. Maybe it'll be like people will probably see it in like five or six times and be like, the fuck is this? Let me check this shit out. And they'll be like, oh, this is dope. And they play funky beats under it. Cool. Yeah, it'll be nice if we can have good conversations about it, Um, you know, just in general. Because like I really do appreciate in this last little clip um, something that he said that he was acknowledging even back then. That um, the protesters were considered to be like rioters and anarchists and like causing chaos. And it's like, what did they say about Ferguson? What did hmm. they say when MLK was marching? What did they say right now with the fucking um, the Floyd uprisings? Like, it's weird how no matter how we protest, we're always seen as like chaos, rioters, criminals. So it's almost as if their talking points haven't changed since the, since the beginning of forever, and we should probably not worry about what they're going to call us because they're going to call us that regardless. And by we, we mean class comrades. Class comrades. We mean populace. Yeah, yeah. well, hey, I, I hear the word. I'm like, hey, you know what? Whatever that is, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I, I do populism over here. You know, like if somebody asks me, like, hey, what's your fucking deal, guy? Populism, what's yours? Fuck face. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's accurate, I think. Yeah, because it's for the populace. Yeah. It's for the population. Like, it's so obvious. But you know what? To someone, it might not be. And this might be a good book for you. And uh, tag your friend. This might be a good book for your aunt uh, Stephanie. You know, like, you might be like, hey, Aunt Stephanie, check out these fucking, these podcasting niggas. (laughs) You know, it might be one of those New York Italians, right? I found some niggas. Really? They got a good fucking podcast. Yeah, oh. get, hey, there's still a couple of fucking moolies, but really? they care about the people. Really? Yeah, That's a couple of niggas. What? Oh <laughs> my god, you're goofy. That's how people that tune into the program talk. All it's, of them. It's not. Literally everybody that listens to this program talks like I that. I don't think so. I'm pretty you sure see, Phoenix says we don't fucking talk. Like, that's how the fuck we talk about these niggas. No, no. <laughs> okay. So if you want to hear more niggas. Uh, you can check out patreon.com slash wine cellar media fund 
and keep this thing up and or running, there's always paypal.me slash Phoenix and William. Phoenix Kalita set up the um, cash application, which is dollar sign Phoenix Kalita. And on the uh, face booze, a little clicky poo on the Venmo at Wine Cellar Meteor. We enjoy the tips because like, uh, like what I do, I, I just went and got some, um, this is probably actually not going to sound good, but it, it's good <laughs> to me. Okay. You fuck. Um, <laughs> I got some frozen boxed fried chicken yes. out of a dollar store. Yes. Well, I mean, we're also like, we're not cooking this week. We're packing this yeah. week. And there's no fucking air conditioning and it's like 90 degrees in the fucking kitchen and... Yeah, like somebody just... knocked on the door like selling shit or something or... No, I think it may have been the census, but I didn't really care to look. I just opened yeah. the door wider and just waved my hand at the boxes and I was like, we're busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the air conditioner's broken. That is horrible. Like, it is torturous because it's so fucking hot this week. Yeah, we have a window unit in the office so we can podcast and a window unit in the bedroom so we can sleep. And remember, Phoenix Kalita works from home. Yeah. Like, she needs a place to be able to work. Yeah. And you can't have your mind right when you're fucking roasting. No, no. All right, that's a whole... I already did the pitch. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's it. All right, I I never wanted to end really. No, no, you I ne- don't. Like, yeah, you really like, fucking don't. I'd be wanting to launch into a story from work, like how they got these fucking new goddamn machine parts. Like, really, it's my last week, and I have to <laughs> reassemble brand new machine parts that I didn't even know exist since the last time I worked out of this machine room. It's mm-hmm. bull and it's shit. Really? I don't know if you knew it was both Are you of those sure? things. Both. 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 It may be bison poop, but I think it's bullshit <laughs> right now. Por no los dos? Por no los dos? No... It's los tres. It's three machines. Oh, my God. Tres maquinas, mm-hmm. senora. Mm-hmm. How, long after we get to, uh, how long after we get to Michigan are you going to forget any Spanish that you have learned? I only know the bad words. You only know the bad words? What? Yes. That's it. Like, all I know, like, I know that if someone makes a mistake, I'm supposed to say no mommy's way. Like, I know that that's <laughs> that's my job. If I don't say that, then it's not official. It's not official. Yeah. Okay. All right. And let that be that. And let this be this. <laughs>